welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler. In fact, we've spoken to Hans on his work with the monitoring team before. He is the Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project in New York and Berlin. And importantly for our conversation today, Hans is the former coordinator of the highly influential ISIL Al-Qaeda Taliban Sanctions Monitoring Team of the United Nations Security Council. Today we are going to focus on the really rapidly dramatic unfolding situation in Afghanistan. Our discussion forms part of a much wider set of rapid response initiatives, webinars and briefings that we are looking at the situation on the ground, what it all means in relation to sanctions, risk and humanitarian aspects. So Hans, welcome, privileged to have you back, even although the times are slightly dramatic here, it's great to be speaking to you. Thank you so much, Justine. I really appreciate being involved in your podcast again, and I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. Hans, you and I have both focused on Taliban, Afghanistan issues for many years. We've both worked in the region. What has been going through your mind as you've watched events over the past few weeks? I think the major headline here is concern. Obviously, there is a very, very serious humanitarian situation going on in Afghanistan and getting worse by the day. But also the takeover of the Taliban means that the security situation, especially as far as terrorism within the region and out of the region, just got that much more complicated. It is really a risk now that the country becomes once again a center of regional and maybe even global instability. And I'm really dreading how this volatile situation is going to continue to evolve. Yeah, I mean, you joined us last week for a webinar. And I think, you know, everybody just spoke about this uncertainty and just the fear of what the future may hold. Within that, there's an awful lot of discussions around sanctions, what is currently in place, what may be on the horizon. And actually, it's a really complex issue around the UN sanctions targeting the Taliban. What would you say to people to keep in mind? What's the most relevant things for them to be aware of? Well, first of all, this is an actual quite complicated sanctions architecture because we have not only one United Nations Security Council regime, but two. I mean, historically, the first regime that targeted the Taliban and Afghanistan was the 1267-1999 regime founded in 1999 that targets famously Al-Qaeda and ISIL. And to this day, several of the Al-Qaeda affiliates continue to operate in Afghanistan. And of course, ISIS-K, very famous for the airport attack, are listed there. And then on top of that, and spun off in 2011 to enable negotiations with the Taliban, you have the 1988 sanctions regime, where you have pretty much the entire Taliban leadership on the sanctions. Now, the good news here is that these uh, Security Council sanctions regimes are targeted sanctions regimes, which means the individuals and the entities that are on the list are the sanctions target. No one who is on the, not on the list is affected by these sanctions. And the Taliban, crucially, as an entity, are not sanctioned by the Security Council. Now, that's, however, unfortunately, where the good news ends, because there, of course, are a lot of bilateral sanctions against the Taliban, against ISIL and Al-Qaeda, chiefly, of course, the US sanctions, which unfortunately did designate the Taliban as an entity, which means this is a much more broader and more intrusive sanctions regime than the Security Council has. So it is keeping complex. Obviously, there will be some negotiations on what is the way forward because the 1988 regime was meant 
to facilitate a peaceful and negotiated solution in Afghanistan, which quite obviously and famously and tragically did not materialize. So I assume there is going to be some rebuilding of the 1988 regime, or in the worst case scenario, a refolding of the Taliban on the ISIL al-Qaeda list, which will make no one's life easier. Oh, gosh, it is really complex. And again, so much uncertainty in the direction of travel here. But how important is the relationship between the Taliban by itself versus the Taliban and other terrorist groups, whether that's AQ or others? You know, what should we really be looking at here? Yeah, unfortunately, the Taliban from its inception have been what I call a symbiotic relationship with Al-Qaeda. And they've never really broken that relationship. And the reason why they never broken that relationship is that while, of course, the Taliban are focused on Afghanistan and establishing an emirate in Afghanistan, they do ideologically feel part of a global jihadist movement. And their link to this global movement is Al-Qaeda. That's why after they lost the regime in 2001, due to the actions of Al-Qaeda, they didn't break with Al-Qaeda. They didn't break with Al-Qaeda in the last 20 years, although Al-Qaeda really wasn't able to give them anything of significance in the fight against the foreign forces in Afghanistan. And they now, after they won in Afghanistan, are not going to and never have indicated that they are going to break with Al-Qaeda. Or the other way around, in Al-Qaeda's view, the Taliban are a very important force that can harbor and protect them. That's why the Al-Qaeda leadership, including Savahiri and his lieutenants, have sworn personal loyalty and even Al-Qaeda affiliates out of Afghanistan, their leaders swear loyalty personally to, in this case, Mullah Haibatullah, the leader of the Taliban. One really striking example is Iyad Aghali when he announced the new Al-Qaeda coalition in West Africa called Jinnim in 2017. Now, West Africa, quite obviously, is not bordering Afghanistan. He swore loyalty to Zawahiri uh, and the Taliban as well. Though you, you can see on this example how important this relationship is for both sides. So that is not boding well of how much control the Taliban have over Al-Qaeda. Needless to say, you know, the UN has quite uh, detailed reported since 2019 that Al-Qaeda and Taliban leaders were negotiating even and consulting on each step of the negotiations with the United States. The only real opposition in the country, if you could see this as a positive, is ISIS-K, the affiliate of the Islamic State in Afghanistan, very ruthless, has been a harbor for disgruntled Taliban, plus fighters from other countries, including Pakistan. And I assume now that power gets distributed and in all power distributions, there is going to be winners on the Taliban side and there is going to be losers on the Taliban side. And so ISIS-K will have looked forward to a recruitment bonanza if uh, things go not really, really well. So, I mean, I'm taking it. You really need to look at this through the lens of both Afghanistan, but also internationally, because these groups are so international in their presence as well, that, you know, this is going to be a clear dynamic here. And on that, I just want to go back to the 1267, because those listeners who aren't really familiar with the sanctions regime, you've identified that there are two key UN sanctions regimes, 1267 being one of them. And this is the regime which really targets the terrorist individual entities of concern and it imposes significant obligations on countries and indeed the private sector 
a little bit of commentary from you around how does 1267 play out? Because when this was developed, it was really, and when it was agreed at the Security Council level, it was really targeted toward terrorist actors. The thinking wasn't that it would apply to government bodies. So how does the Taliban now being the government of Afghanistan impact 1267, its obligations and international thinking? For me, I think the level of complexity here is phenomenal. Well, indeed it is. And there is a little bit of an historical irony here. So for a brief moment, when this regime was established and the initial 1267 list in 1999 actually did target a somewhat governmental structure, i.e. the Taliban. And the initial list included way more Taliban than al-Qaeda leaders because the ask was not to push back al-Qaeda, but the ask was to the regime in Afghanistan at the time, the Taliban, to deliver Osama bin Laden and some of his lieutenants for court cases in America due to them bombing the U.S. embassy in Nairobi in Dar es Salaam. Only after 2001 did 1267 evolve from a very geographically focused and single issue, give me Osama bin Laden, Afghanistan, to this global list of Al-Qaeda and affiliates. Unfortunately, uh, it is now a global list of affiliates because that means it adds another layer of complexity to Afghanistan because of the international connections that Al-Qaeda maintains out of Afghanistan. It has three basic sanctions measures, a total and complete asset freeze, a total and complete travel ban on everyone who's on the list, and a total and complete arms embargo. Now, for asset freeze and travel ban, you can ask for very limited exemptions to attend a court hearing for humanitarian purposes. Also, if the government of Saudi Arabia agrees, to attend Hajj. But that's about it. So if we would refold the Taliban into that list, negotiations would not be impossible, but that much harder. Again, this is going to be something that is really going to be on the front of everybody's thinking by way of governments and the international community. The other big question in relation to the stability concerns, the counterterrorism concerns, is really around the drugs trade. And I really want to ask a little bit around the Taliban's income streams and especially the opportunity it now has to benefit from the opium drugs trade. What are the potential scenarios we could be looking at here? And I suppose I'd also sort of ask around, you know, do we think drugs production will increase, decrease under a Taliban government? What does that all look like? Yeah, first of all, as my colleagues and I really demonstrated in 2015 already, there's never been the Taliban without drug money. The initial funding of the Taliban came from Afghan drug lords. There is, of course, and they mentioned this in their very first press conference a couple of weeks ago, this incident in 2001 where they simply stopped one of the harvests of poppies in Afghanistan. Now, very crucially and very differently what ISIL did a couple of years later in Nangar, they did not burn the crop, they stored the crop and then released it to the market. So I would say this was a heroin global market price adjustment measure rather than an expression of how much the Taliban hated poppy production. And then, of course, after 2001, they then full out and consistently have been responsible for over 90% of poppies and hashish being grown in Afghanistan and traded out of Afghanistan. So I really much doubt their initial announcement from the Taliban spokesperson that their aim is to eradicate drugs. I'd love to see that because how are they going to pay their commanders or the commanders pay their fighters? I assume we will at best keep at this level. Very likely we're going to see an increase but we're definitely not going to see a full eradication of drugs in Afghanistan, apart from the fact that 
there is really no other cash crop. The Taliban made sure over the last 20 years that the Afghan economy couldn't develop because they created insecurity all over the country all of the time. So investments weren't made, infrastructure wasn't built or maintained. So, you know, there is really little left for them apart from banking again on getting money from drugs. So, I mean, this alternative, lack of alternatives of other cash crops, income generation is just going to be critical, both for the Taliban, but also for the civilian population who will also be benefiting. Because I mean, one of the things I've really noticed on, you know, working in the region on drugs issues is there's so many people who benefit from this across the whole of society in many ways, but it also brings real instability in its own right. So, in relation to the regional transit route, so whether that's the northern route up through Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, across to Iran or Pakistan, what do you think is going to happen? Are these routes going to be changing? Are we going to see new trends in drugs trafficking? Are we going to see more drugs going across land borders? What do you think we might see here? Well, there is one not as well-known route, which is, however, crucially important. It's called the southern route. This is the purest heroin flowing out of Afghanistan. Consistently, 80% plus pure heroin is getting shipped out from the Makran coast via the Indian Ocean into East Africa, and then from East Africa down to South Africa via ship and via North uh, Africa by airplane into Europe. So that route is also there. And that is the route where the Taliban actually seem to be, as far as we could see, uh, being in control of the entire flow until Europe, because the package that the U.S. forces, in cooperation with the monitoring team, seized in the Indian Ocean on the Dow, had the same packaging, the same imprints, and the same stamps as packages seized by the British police in Durham, meaning nothing was cut in between. And the Dow captains had the telephone numbers of the European dealers in their satellite phone. That's how close a loop the southern route was, and that's why I think the Taliban earned more money than we all assumed on the drug trade because it didn't stop for them on the Afghan border. Now, I would assume all three routes, as you said, the northern route, supplying not only Central Asia, but also Russia and China with heroin, the western route via Iran, Turkey, and the Balkans into Europe, and the southern route are both going to continue to exist. As you know, famously, uh, the Iranians have the highest drug-injecting population percentage on the globe. That's not going to help them. There is always, with drugs, there's weapons, there's insecurity. So I don't see that situation in any way getting more positive. And you've seen Russia is already conducting one military exercise after the other on the northern border of Afghanistan. Kind of makes it questionable, the initial statements that they're so comfortable, uh, you know, having a dialogue with the Taliban. It doesn't look to me that they're very comfortable if you have the need to have several military exercises in the last couple of weeks. And my observation here is when you have a transit route for one product, illicit product, then it becomes so open to other products. And that could be two way, isn't it? By way of arms coming in, other products going out, that whole contrafect transit routes is just so complex here. But look, let me just ask around if the Taliban, you know, the anticipation is they're going to continue this trade in drugs, that they will still benefit from drugs. But Clearly, they've now moved into a situation in respect to being the government of Afghanistan, and they are going to look for wider international relationships. And 
investment will be key here. Is there going to be an investment vacuum occur because, you know, the US and others who are supporting development activities are stepped out of the region? Do you think China or other countries will step in? What do you think is going to happen on this international investment stage? Well, I mean, first of all, the going assumption is, of course, that the Chinese are going to step in because for the last decade, they made sure that they got mining concessions all over Afghanistan for pretty much anything of value. And they couldn't operationalize these concessions because of the insecurity. However, I just want to point out three issues that seem to be getting lost in the conversation about this bonanza of Chinese mining activities in Afghanistan. Number one, infrastructure. There is one ring road, and that's just one road for the entire country. So how are you going to get your product out? And there is zero railroads. These need to first be built if you want to do large-scale mining or build large-scale mining operations in the first place. Secondly, there are a myriad of technical problems. Everyone knows Mess Einak, the copper deposits there because of the very famous archaeological site that's going to get destroyed when it gets mined. That is also very nice, but there is no water except for the Bamiyan River. So you're going to have to make a choice. You want to drink water in Bamiyan or you want to mine copper in Bamiyan, both at the same time. It's not possible. There's not enough water. So there is these technical issues that no one seems to think through at this point. And thirdly, this is not a secure country or a secure region. Your product will have to go through some land border towards Pakistan because that's where the harbor is. Famously, the Afghan-Pakistan border region has never been a really secure region. So if you're mining large-scale deposits like copper or talcum or marble for the world market, your added on security costs is simply going to price you out of the competition. So this is not very likely to happen on that scale. Yes, there are some very valuable things like lithium and gold and precious stones. But apart from that, I just have a problem getting my head around the economics of this alleged bonanza of, of mining activities that is supposed to be going on in, in Afghanistan. These things have been in the ground there for hundreds of thousands of years. Why did no one get the idea to mine this stuff in the 50s and 60s either? So, you know, question marks all around here on this one. So it's a long road ahead for Afghanistan under the best of circumstances, which we are certainly not in right now to even get somewhere to a position where drugs will no longer play the major role as a cash crop in the country. And it's a long road ahead for the civilian population as well. And I really want us to discuss what does this mean for them? I mean, what is the impact here in terms of humanitarian activity, civilian livelihoods, and just their day-to-day -day stability? Well, and here is the really concerning news. I mean, Afghanistan was teetering on the brink of a humanitarian breakdown before all of this happened anyway. Now, with the departure and in the way it was done, all communications is at the moment cut. Uh, obviously, there are some supplies that the UN already has in country. But as you may have heard, uh, by the end of September, even the World Food Program is going to run out of um, supplies. So we need the land borders with Pakistan to functioning and opening again. I heard that some trucks were, uh, were able to go across, but that needs to pick up. And I'm just talking about humanitarian deliveries, right? Secondly, very crucially, the airports of Afghanistan need to be open again, because as I said, the road infrastructure isn't exactly geared to supplying all corners of the country. So we need Kabul airport, but also the regional airports in Kandahar, in Mazar Sharif, in Herat, open as fast as possible to make sure that Whatever is there is distributed. And then there needs to be some cash flows again. 
at the moment, people are queuing up for 10,000 Afghanis, which is literally nothing, for hours in front of Kabul banks. And that's not even talking about the provinces. This is a cash-only economy. If you can't get your hand on cash, you cannot buy things. There is no card payment in this country. So we need to make sure that humanitarian deliveries and some measured restart of the economy happens sooner rather than later, because already everyone in Europe is planning and assuming that we're going to see large numbers of Afghan refugees arriving if we don't rectify or at least ameliorate this very tragic situation on the humanitarian sector soon that number is going to be significantly higher and people are going to arrive significantly earlier than we all assume at this point and who would blame them it is truly heartbreaking. I mean, I don't think any of us can watch this and just not be touched. And, you know, and this is why we've been working so hard. But and when I say we, I mean, both you and I and many others on this humanitarian context and ensuring that the international community, there is an ability to deliver humanitarian activity within Afghanistan itself, and whether that be through financial sector payments or delivery of goods, this is gonna be so complex for everybody to manage. And in that, I just really want to look, you know, ask you for a few final words around the most immediate priorities. Will the focus of the international community now be purely on establishing a dialogue with the Taliban? Will they be focusing on trying to influence their behavior or other other priorities? What do you think is now sitting on the desk of ministries around the world and what they're going to do over the next few months? I mean, first of all, I want to point out here because I'm the sanctions guy, right? Sanctions are meant to modify the behavior of the sanctions target, which means by their very definition, they don't forbid you talking to the sanctions target. Negotiations with the Taliban under U.S. sanctions, under U.N. Security Council sanctions is always possible. You just can't pay them, right? But talking is possible. Getting an agreement to get humanitarian deliveries there, as long as you don't pay for that agreement, right, is possible. So that's where I think the most important concentration needs to be that humanitarian deliveries are not the reason why sanctions are done. Um, humanitarian deliveries in every single Security Council sanctions resolution of every regime are by definition excluded because you have a reference to international and international humanitarian law. So you can't pay the adversary but you certainly can negotiate your way into to get humanitarian deliveries. That is really, really important to understand. On the development front, you've heard the Europeans, you also heard the Americans. I think the train is very going clearly in a direction that outside humanitarian deliveries, for which incidentally, OFAC, as we heard this week in the webinar from a very knowledgeable guy, John Smith, who used to head OFAC, has indicated that they are going to not going to prosecute um, if you do humanitarian deliveries and critical infrastructure, and if in doubt, please call OFAC. But above that, if you're talking about development, if you're talking about the 40% of the government budget that the international community, i.e. the US and the Europeans have paid so far, that is of course now a big question mark. And there is going to be very likely quite clear conditions attached to that if the Taliban wanna have that money. Hans, thank you so much. Your insights as ever are so critical. I really hope everyone has really benefited from this podcast and understanding the situation on the ground in Afghanistan. It is 
heartbreaking, it's evolving, and it's going to change quite rapidly over the next few months to come. So please do sign up to continue hearing the stories behind sanctions and indeed Afghanistan, because our next few podcasts will entirely focus on the unfolding Afghanistan situation. Hans, thank you again, and thank you to our listeners. Justine, always a pleasure and an honor to be there, and hopefully next time in less tragic circumstances as these then. Thank you. Thank you.